Well, let's look to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Encourage you to open your Bible and turn there. Again, that's found on page, I think, about 1007 if you're using the Bibles provided for you. So wonderful to have a number of folks visiting with families today. Our prayers with a, uh, a number of our people away with their fathers and families. So our prayers go out for them. But what a joy to listen to our Father's voice from his word today. And so we'll do that. If you're a guest, we're on a journey through this letter of Hebrews, which is a reminder for the Christians of all ages that Jesus is better. There's nothing to be compared to him better than all is the Lord Jesus. So we've come to chapter 10, this incredible journey, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 18 today. Now, over 150 years ago, there was a, a lovely chapel built in a village in England. It was a, a Baptist chapel. And so when the chapel was constructed, there was an inscription put over the entrance to the church. And the inscription said, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Of course, quotation from the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians, where he says, we preach Christ crucified. So there was the message of the testimony of that church. We preach Christ crucified. But over a period of time, some ivy began to grow up that entrance, and it grew over and covered the word crucified. So for a period of time, it simply said, we preach Christ. And then over an extended period of time, the ivy continued to grow, and it grew over the word Christ. And so the entrance said, we preach. And the ivy continued to grow until the word preach was covered, and the entrance of the church just said, we, we. Well, that entrance to the church, that chapel in England, is a testimony of what can happen to any body of believers in Jesus Christ, any church that is not grounded on the Word of God. We can be a church that preaches Christ crucified. But after a period of time, that idea of such a bloody religion, the hideous crucifixion, that's not really popular, politically correct. So we preach Christ. Of course, then in time, it becomes clear that Christ said some very unpopular things. Christ said some hard stuff. And so the church just begins to preach. The message is still, but it's not Christ. It's not crucified. And in reality, what happens to that church, it just becomes people who gather together. It's just we. It's just we. That's what can happen when people become ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the gospel that he died, he was crucified, buried, and rose again. We have sung that over and over this morning. And friends, you know there is power in that message. 
The power is not just in the messenger. The power is not just in the place. The power is inherent in the word itself. Christ crucified is the power. It's the power of the gospel, the good news. And that's the message of the new covenant. The message of the new covenant is not the message of sacrifices over and over again, but it's the message of one solitary, supreme, eternal sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, him crucified. Now, the writer is saying to these Jewish believers, don't be ashamed of that. I know that is a scandalous thought for your people, but don't be ashamed of this message. The Messiah crucified. Friends, that's the timeless challenge. It's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is Christ crucified once and for all, the sacrifice to God. That's the heart of the gospel. And that's the heart of what the writer is sharing here. And God has inspired that message and put it into his word so that his followers, the followers of Jesus, might always be followers of the new covenant and not drawn back into the old. Now, notice here as the writer as we've read this, I hope you saw this, the writer begins by sharing about the inadequacies of the law. The inadequacies of the law. It's not that the law is bad. Don't let that ever be in your mind that the law of God is bad and the message of the gospel is good. It's not that the law is bad. It's just that the law, the law of Moses was inadequate. It could not accomplish what was needed in the lives of the people. And so the reality is that the law was never intended to be the final and ultimate expression of life with God. It was never intended to be final. As a matter of fact, look at verse 1. It's, he says this law is just a shadow. It's just a, a dim shadow of the true form that was to come. The true form meaning the good things. What are the good things? Well, good things are gospel things. The gospel is good news, right? The good things are the gospel things. They are the realities. These realities that we're talking about in the new covenant, they're not shadows. They're not just images, but they are realities. The things that are not seen are eternal, right? The things that we believe, Christ is the ultimate reality. And so he says here, the law was inadequate. The law was inadequate to give these gospel realities. And the reason the law was inadequate, notice in these verse, first three or four verses, is he says the sacrifices were inadequate. What was the heart of the law? The heart of the Mosaic law, the old covenant, was the sacrificial system. The offering of animals as a sacrifice to God. And the writer says that these sacrifices were inadequate. They, they couldn't do the job. Now notice he says, 
Three inadequacies. Let me just mention them quickly here if I might. Three inadequacies of the sacrifices. Three inadequacies of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Number one, the sacrifices could not restore relationship. They could not restore relationship. It can never buy these same sacrifices. You see verse one? It can never buy these same sacrifices that are continually offered each year make perfect those who draw near. And the word perfect here, make perfect, means to make whole. The people who come bringing these sacrifices, they come year after year bringing the sacrifices. The priests offer them, but the people who are drawing near, who are coming near to God in the temple, they can never be made whole. They come near. Their hearts truly love the Lord but they can't go in there. They can't go into that temple. They can't go behind that curtain. They can't go into the living, actual presence of God. They can't do it. The sacrifices could not restore relationship with God. Secondly, the sacrifices could not relieve guilt. They could not relieve guilt. Verse 2 says, Otherwise, they, the sacrifices, would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Consciousness here means a consciousness of full pardon, a consciousness of total acceptance. The law could never give that. The the sacrifices could never make a person know in his or her heart of hearts full acceptance, full pardon, full restoration of relationship. And thirdly, the sacrifices were inadequate because they could not ultimately remove sin. They could not remove sin. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is, what's the next word? Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The blood of these bulls and goats and lambs, they could never remove sin. They could only cover for a period of time. They they could only just be temporary in a covering before God, but could not remove their sins. Why? Do you think a holy God can be satisfied that the penalty of our sins has been dealt with by the death of a goat or a bull or a lamb? It's not possible. Our sin is so terrible. The blood of an animal cannot remove it. As a matter of fact, it actually reminds you when you have to come year after year after year, you're actually reminding yourself it's not done yet. It's not done yet. It's not done yet. It's not been removed completely. The law was inadequate. 
It was inadequate, inadequate to restore fellowship. It was inadequate to relieve guilt. It was inadequate to remove sin. Now let me stop here just for a moment. Everything that I've just said and the writer says about the law can also be said, listen carefully, about religion. Religion can never restore a relationship with God. Religion can never remove guilt. Religion can never remove sin and relieve your guilt. Religion cannot do that. What a sad cycle goes on. And my heart compels me to say, perhaps for some here this morning, you're repeating the sad cycle that you have repeated maybe for years, along with hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of other people. Here's the cycle. Sunday after Sunday, service after service, song after song, sermon after sermon, sacrament after sacrament, but never any satisfaction that you are completely right with God. Religion can't do that. But praise God, the Redeemer can. He can. Jesus can do it. That's the reason Jesus is better. Because Jesus can do what religion and what sacrifice can never do, he can do. He can restore relationship. He can relieve of guilt. He can remove sin. Jesus can do that. But it required his intervention. He had to come and it required the intervention of the law, the Lord. The law was inadequate. And that's the reason the Lord himself had to come. The Lord personally intervened by coming in person. <laughs> what the law could not do in that, in that it was weak, God sending his own son in the likeness of sin and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, Romans 8. What the law couldn't do, the Lord could do. But in order to do it, he had to come. He had to come. Verse 5 says, Christ came into the world. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, Galatians tells us. In the perfect time, God sent forth his son like a missionary. And on a mission. And here's the amazing passage. This is an amazing passage. There's very few other verses like this. Verses 5 through 9. This is amazing. Because what you have here. Is described for you the mission of Jesus. But listen carefully. You get to listen into the details. As there's a divine conversation about the mission. We actually get to listen to God the Father and God the Son talk about the mission. It's amazing. And what that mission would require. Verses 
5 down to verse number 9 is a quotation from Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. But remember, David was not just a king, he was also a prophet. And sometimes in his songs, David wrote songs that were prophetic songs. And some of those songs were about the Messiah. We call them messianic psalms, psalms about the Messiah. And Psalm 40 is one of the greatest of those messianic psalms when you actually get to hear the Messiah talking to his father about his mission. Isn't it amazing? Now, what would be required? It would, what would be required was a personal incarnation. Christ must come into the world. You see, friends, here's the gospel truth, and it is a wonderful, but we can't wrap our minds around it. In order for God to save us, he had to become one of us. Do you understand that? That in order to save us, there was no one who could save us, no angel, no human. The only one that could do it was God himself, and in order to do it, he had to become a man. And that is what we celebrate, or we should celebrate at Christmas. Amen? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? Savior who is Christ the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. Incarnation. But for the next 33 years after the incarnation, Jesus lived to be approximately 33 years of age. It required of him a focused intention. A focused intention. Verse 7 here was the focus of Jesus' life. What was Jesus thinking about all his life when he began to understand who he was? What was he focused on? Verse 7. Then I said, this is Messiah speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it has been written about me in the scroll of the book, as it has been written by me by your prophets, I have come to do your will. Friends, Jesus had one fixed point guiding his life, and it was the Father's will. The Father's will. And what was the Father's will? What was the Father's will that Jesus focused his intention on? The Father's will was one thing. Listen carefully. Love. Love. Not romantic feelings of love. Not ethereal floating in the atmosphere love. Not platonic love. But the love was a sacrificial love. A love that gives all for the people who are loved. That was the mission of Jesus, to love to the death, even the death of the cross. Sin was conquered by love. Love to the death. 
And that's what Jesus did. He came to love and he loved all the way to the end, John says in John chapter 13. All the way, Jesus said, I will. For this cause I came into the world. For this cause I was born. No man takes my life from me. It is mine and I lay it down myself. I have this commission from my Father to lay down my life for my people and I will do it. That was Jesus' will. Thank God he accomplished his mission, right? When Jesus said, it is finished, that was not defeat, that was mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. And what did his mission result in? It resulted in our personal salvation. He loved us. He loved us to save us. To save us from ourselves. Do you understand, dear people, when Jesus saves someone, he saves you from yourself. It's not sin that's external from you. It's not just things that you do that are outside of you. In order to be saved, you have to be saved from yourself. It is yourself that is sending you to hell. It is yourself that is condemning you. It is yourself that is in rebellion. God must save us from ourselves. And he did it. How did he do it? Verse 10. My friend, what an infinite truth is shared in this verse. I, I want us just maybe just to worship over it as we just, just take this verse, look at it carefully. And by that will, by the will of God and the will of his son Jesus, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Friend, there is enough gospel right there to save the entire human race. All that is needed to know to be saved is right here in this verse. Not a shadow, but reality. Reality of the gospel. What is it? By that will. By whose will are we saved? Not our will. Not someone else's will. What was I doing by my will? I'll tell you what I was doing by my will and what you were doing by your will before you were converted. You were living for yourself and you were living in sin and in rebellion against God. Well, I became willing. Something happened. I, I became willing to find the Lord, to know the Lord. Guess where that willingness came from? God himself. No man can come to me, Jesus said, except the Father draws him. Jesus said, I will lay down my life for my sheep. And they will hear my voice. And they will come. By that will. Notice, we. We. Who's the we? Practically perfect people. We who just need a little nudge in the right direction. 
We who have a few problems, we who have a couple of bad habits, no, 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 no. We, we're in church, right? We, sinners, rebel sinners, not sinners because of somebody else's influence, sinners by choice, sinners ourselves, rebelling against God, determined to live our own lives. That's the we, we. But what has happened? We have been sanctified. What's that mean? We rebel sinners have been made holy. We've not just been, you know, reformed. We've been completely changed. We've been, well, born again, I guess you could call it. We've been made right with God. We're not who we used to be. That's what that means. We have been. It's not could be, going to be, when we get to heaven, might be. No, it has happened. Well, how did that happen? How could rebel sinners like us ever become God's people? Verse 10, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. What did the Son of God have to have? He had to have a body. Why did he have to have a body? So that in that body, which had never known sin or rebellion against God, in that body, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, would crawl up on that altar, the cross, and he would offer himself up to God like a burnt offering. And the wrath of God was poured out on his holy Son so that God's wrath against sin, my sin and your sin, was burnt out. It was completely unleashed. All the damned up justice of God against your sin and my sin, it was poured out on Jesus once for all. Once for all. The Son of God became a burnt offering. Not a bull, not a goat, not a lamb. But the Son of God became a burnt offering. Burnt to a crisp spiritually by the justice of God on our sin. Once for all. What a God. What a Savior. Is Jesus better? Is he better? It's finished. He's accomplished his Father's will. With his crying breath, his last words, it's finished. The veil in the temple rent. What did that mean? The old covenant abolished. Verse 9, it's been put away done away with, abolished, literally, and now the new has come. He inaugurated it. Brand new covenant through his once-for-all sacrifice, not for practically perfect people, but for rebel sinners like me and you. And he inaugurated a new covenant. It's brand new. 
All new. <laughs> How new is it? Well, thank you for asking. It's new this way. There's a new priest. A new priest. You know, verse 11, I read verse 11 with a little bit of sadness for the futility of those priests. And every priest is still standing, present tense. When the writer is writing this, the temple still exists. It's the priests are still standing. They're daily doing the service. They're offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. How futile. How empty. You see, there's a new priest. The other priests, they don't know it, but they've received notice. Maybe like some of you have received notice. Something like this. Position eliminated. <laughs> right? Or how about this? Services no longer required. There's those priests going through the same motions, but their job is not needed, their position is not needed, their, their service is not needed. Why? Because the sacrifice of Christ has once and for all been offered. There's never been another sacrifice needed since that April day in 33 A.D., there's never been the need of another priest to offer a sacrifice on your behalf because the one and only priest has offered himself. There's a new priest. And guess what? This priest isn't standing. What's this priest been doing for the last 2,000 years? Verse 12, he's sitting But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, what? He sat down at the right hand of God. What did I tell you? There was never as a piece of furniture in the temple, what? No chair, no place for a priest to sit down. They just served and served and served. And when their shift was over, another shift of priests came on. And they served and served and served, and then another shift came on. But they never sat down. Why? Because the sacrifices were never done. But this priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, having offered himself once and for all to God, when he ascended back to the Father from where he came, he went back to that throne and what? Sat down. Mission accomplished. He sat down. And now what's Jesus doing? He's sitting on that throne. And by his own divine mind, he rules over his kingdom. And he is preparing a place for his followers. But you know what Jesus is doing? He's waiting. He's waiting. Verse 13, he is waiting from that time, from the day of his ascension. He is waiting from that time until his enemies 
should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is waiting. He's waiting until the Father says, It's time, my son, go back. And Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. And I love a bumper sticker I saw one day. I've never forgotten it. It's the only time I've ever seen it. Here's what it said. Jesus is coming soon, and boy, is he mad. (laughs) Because when Jesus comes back, he's not coming on a little colt of a donkey. No. He's coming, the Bible says, on a white charger as a mighty conqueror, and all the armies of heaven are with him, and every knee shall bow, every eye shall see him, and he's coming in flaming fire of judgment on his enemies. That's what the Bible says. And all his enemies will be put under his feet. Now, who are some of his enemies? Let me tell you, it may surprise you. Death. That was never my father's plan. You're done. Grave. Never be another one. Never. Worry. Grief. Sadness. Sorrow. All under his feet. All those who said, we will not have him rule over us. He's coming. And I can't wait. I can't wait until that slithering serpent, that lying monster, that fallen prince, liar, murderer of all, Satan is thrown at the feet of Jesus and Jesus puts his feet on him and says, you're done. You're done. That's going to happen. They're going to drag, they're going to drag the one whom the nations shake in his presence. They're going to drag that one before Jesus and Jesus is going to put his foot on his head and then cast him into the bottomless pit forever. That's what's ahead for Satan. So my friend, listen, the next time you think you're sensing Satan's reminding you of your past, I understand you remind him of his future. I want to tell you, I started to say it's not so hot, but his future is real hot. (laughs) Tell him. Tell him. Don't make a God out of Satan. There's only one God. That's the Lord God Almighty. The Bible says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Satan's not afraid of you. He's not afraid of me. But he's afraid of my dad and my big brother. Yeah. 
There's a new priest. And there's going to be new people. New people. How new? Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected. He's made complete. Did you compare that to verse 1? The sacrifices could never make anybody perfect, could never make anybody complete. But Jesus makes absolutely complete all who believe in him. They are perfected. This is a gospel reality. Our position in Christ is one of perfection. The Bible says that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in the mind of God, it's as if you are already seated in heaven with him. Your salvation is so sure, your glorification is so certain, if you are a child of God in the mind of God, it's as if you're already there. But now there's a process in our lives. He is the Savior, the of all those who have been sanctified. It's happened. But now they are being, notice this, they are being sanctified. They've been perfected, but they're being sanctified. You see, it's a process. In time here on this earth, yes, in our standing, in our position, now we are the children of God. But right now in our experience, we're... we're we're growing and stumbling and getting up and going forward and straying sometimes, but we rise up and we follow the Lord. We're, we're not all that we should be in our personal experience, but thank God we're not all we're going to be either, right? But the DNA is there. We've been perfected by God himself. I love senior day here when we honor our seniors and, and we embarrass them. We put the baby pictures up here. You know this. You have the baby picture and then you have their senior picture. And maybe you're like me. You're thinking, you mean that became this? Now, I, don't, I know every baby is beautiful. I know that. Every baby is beautiful. There's a few that just barely make the cut. But they, every baby, <laughs> every baby's beautiful. <laughs> Love is blind. <laughs> Sometimes just say, what a baby, and move on, okay? <laughs> just, just move on. But guess what? Those little babies, they already were those young men and women. The DNA was already there. Just needed time, nourishment, and look at them now. Guess what, friends? That's what it's like to be a Christian. We are born again. We're given a new nature. The nature of God himself. Perfect. But it's taken some time for us to grow into that. We've got to feed our souls, grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. New people and a brand new promise. Oh, you've done it again. You haven't listened quickly enough. You've 
I'm so frustrated. <laughs> New promises. What kind of promises? Well, you can read verses 17, 18, 16, 17, 18. The promises of new covenant, promise of regeneration. Verse 16, I will write the law not on tables of stone. I'll write it on their hearts. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what it means to have a time when the things you liked, you don't like so much anymore, and the things you used to not enjoy, now you enjoy? Something's happened. What, what's happened? Your, your directions change. Your desires change. What's happened? You're new. There's been a regeneration. God's dipped his pen, written his love into your heart. There's a promise of reconciliation. Verse 17, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. When you can't forget your sins, I understand. Thank God he has forgotten them for Jesus' sake. Thank God he says, I will remember them no more. It doesn't mean that there's not this fellowship that's interrupted. It doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want and God is not aware of it. That's not what it means, but it means that God will not hold your sins to your account. Why? Because on the cross, he put them on, on Jesus' account. And he won't remember them against you anymore. And there's restoration. Where the forgiveness has happened. Forgiveness, not just covering for a while, but when true forgiveness has happened, what? There's no more any offering for sin. You know, when God created man, Adam and Eve, he placed them in paradise. Guess what was not there? There was no altar there. No sacrifice. No animals had to die. There's no altar in paradise. And in heaven, guess what? There will not be. There will be no altar of sacrifice there. There will be no sacrifices in heaven. It'll be paradise, restored relationship, freedom, absolute Oneness with God. No need of more sacrifices. Why? Because your Lord and Master bears the scars of the sacrifice, right? And the signs of his love are on him forever and ever and ever. Jesus Paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow.